0: Okay, good morning. Hebrews chapter 12. We were on verse 22. Let me set the stage again. Yet again, Hebrews 12. Um, There's an extended analogy that started in verse um, 18. And the analogy is between Sinai in the Old Testament, the story in Exodus about Sinai and the heavenly Mount Zion of the New Covenant. Okay, And the analogy points out that what we've come to, the term come to kind of pulls us together. See, Hebrews 12.18, For you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, that was Sinai, but it says in verse 22, which is where we're going to start today, but you have come to Mount Zion. So there's your contrast. The Old Covenant, Mount Sinai, New Covenant, heavenly Mount Zion. It's not talking about here. The term Zion is used many different ways, by the way, throughout the Bible. It could mean particularly the Temple Mount. Sometimes it's used uh, figuratively for Jerusalem, for the city. And uh, here it's used figuratively for the heavenly tabernacle and the dwelling place of God in heaven. Okay, so we're on verse 22. It says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels. Now, um, here there's a synonymous parallelism. Mount Zion and the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, are the same place. So that reveals what he meant here by Mount Zion. It's a synonymous parallel structure. Um, This heavenly Jerusalem, that's the only time this phrase is used uh, just like this in with these exact Greek words in the New Testament. Now, remember that what we've come to is that which is not seen. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Faith is the evidence of things not seen. So, if we look at the list of things that we've come to, Mount Zion, city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, myriads of angels, general assembly and church of the firstborn who are rolled in heaven, God, the judge of all, spirits of righteous men made perfect, Jesus, mediator of, a new co- mediator of a new covenant, to sprinkle blood, which is better than the blood of angel or of Abel, and uh, if you think of all those things, every last one of those is not seen, right? Every last one is not seen. So that underscores this importance of faith. And it's part of the whole issue in the book of Hebrews that we've been talking about. The issue keeps going back to the same thing, which is when people backslide, what's happening is a failure of faith. And what they're tempted to do is to go something to something that is seen. All right, Rather than what's not seen, they want to go to what is seen. And what is seen for the Hebrews was the temple was still standing. It was before 70 A.D., the high priest who you could literally see, uh, and he was very well arrayed, so he looked uh, very glorious, to blood of bulls and goats that could be seen as they were literally slaughtered. And um, that temptation is still with us. And people are still, by nature, idolaters. And we would rather go to something tangible than something intangible, and to believe, uh, and to have some icons or something tangible that we could get our hands on, that we would think is making us closer to God. So that's the big failure of faith. Diane Bukowski just told me a story, and her. Uh, her well, go ahead, tell your own story, <laughs> unless you don't my, want to.
1: My sister belongs to a Lutheran church in Prior Lake that just built a new building with a with big campus and everything, and. They put in chairs so that they can use the room for, for various things. And on the floor, they put in a labyrinth.
0: So they have a labyrinth in, the in, sanctuary. in a sanctuary of a Lutheran church, um, which is a pagan practice. Right? So the reason, and this is the age-old reason why pagan practices end up in churches, is the same failure of faith. In in Rome, over the centuries, they brought in various icons, um, objects that were people could look at and actually worship, although they they claim they don't do that because the, we don't see this Jesus. We can't see him. We want to, we have to have something we can see and feel and touch, or we just can't have a significant religious experience. And this temptation is always around, and we see it coming into the evangelical church today by creating things like icons and um, smells and bells, as Dick says. You can
2: even take it one one level. different. I had this letter I showed you. The guy was saying, unless when you worship, you feel the manifest presence of God... God really isn't there and you're lacking something, so you can instead of just having a physical icon, unless you have a, an experience that you can right. feel and sense, it would be in the same category.
0: Yes, I would, to- I totally agree Keith, and that is that these mystical experiences that creates a feeling are also the same type of problem. Not believing Christ who is unseen, not believing that the blood was shed once for all, not believing that we draw near to God in faith, like it says in Hebrews, we need to have something else to make us feel closer to God. By the way, we have a little bit of a breakthrough uh, going on here. I got call, a call from a evangelical free church in Saint Paul, um, who's asked Brian Flynn and I to come over to their church and do our Faith at Risk conference there. Praise the Lord! And they're going to add, they're going to invite all the free churches they, that they know around. Uh, St. Paul, and they had a, a youth pastor who was promoting um, mysticism and all these things we're talking about, and they fired him. And they're bringing in, <laughs> so, they're bringing in Brian Flynn and I, and um, so that, that'll be exciting. Go to a new venue with our little seminar, uh, uh, April 29th, And its uh, E. Free Church over, I think, in Pean Avenue. So that's. Uh, that's a victory and we'll be talking about this at that conference i'll probably redo my material a little bit but um boy do i have a lot of cross references here <clears throat> well let's just get started <laughs> <laughs> dean um, psalm forty two two brian psalm sixty eight seventeen denise psalm eighty four two linda isaiah fifty one eleven um, Linda, second Linda, <laughs> Jeremiah 1010, Cat, Daniel 10, no, Daniel 710, excuse me, Daniel 710, Keith, Galatians 426, Stephen, Philippians 1320, Karen, Revelation 312, Elizabeth, Revelation 511 and 12, and Larry, last but not least, Revelation 21.2. Hey, I knew everybody's name. See, I stick with the front row for two reasons. <laughs> one of them is they're closer to my mic and it makes it easier to, to get it on the tape because I have to expand it. And the other one is I, if I do the same people, I remember their names. <laughs> okay, so we're going to go back over here. Uh, to, Dean has Psalm 42 and verse 2. 42.2. Two. My soul... Sir,
2: thirsteth for God, for the living God, when shall I come and appear before god
0: okay, so there's a verse about thirsting for God, and here we you know I think that's part of what we 're just talking about. We should have a hunger for the Lord, right My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Is there a certain feeling that you know to be God? Now, think about it. Is there some physical impression or feeling that you can be sure is God? No. I'd say no. Now, I'm not saying that there's no feeling that we have, but that's not how we know whether something's from God or not. In other words, you may go to a particularly wonderful worship service and feel... Um, worshipful, joyful, close to God, excited, a lot of wonderful things. I'm not saying that's wrong. But you could get that same impression somewhere where everything was false. Okay, Because Satan's an angel of light. And when we're taught discernment in the New Testament, 1 John 4, 1 through 6, it gives objective criteria, not subjective ones. Because you could get that as some uh, wonderful feeling and be going to something that was put on by a cult. Yes,
1: I think that that verse is uh, true in many ways. I think I think a lot of these things that are happening in the church today is because of a thirst for God.
0: They're just looking in the wrong source. They're going to the wrong place, and and not only that, are not oftentimes not given the means that they need to discern the truth. And so, when you don't have the objective clearly taught, and you emphasize the subjective, then you go wherever it makes you feel closest to God. But you may actually not be close to God at all. Correct. All right. That's how I say yes.
2: Some even say that because a lot of people are looking for God in the feelings, most cults would
0: tend to cater to that as well because that's what they're trying to... Sure. Oh, yeah. Out. Yeah. Sure, and there's a lot of ways to making a wonderful religious experience for people. Alani and then Mike. Yes. Yeah, I'm
1: I just going to say you can use discernment to know what usually what is true or what is false.
0: Yeah, the discernment tells us that you listen to what they're teaching. Right, right. And is the content of the personal work of Christ there? And that And that is determinative, and I, the more I study, the more I believe it always works. it always works, and that is that if somebody claims the Holy Spirit's come upon them, well what, what it looks like, and i 'm going to preach on this uh, i'm preaching on the Mary's Magnificat, they call it, and Elizabeth, the Holy Spirit came upon Elizabeth and if you go through Luke acts whenever the holy spirit comes upon people what comes out of their mouth is something about Jesus or salvation or messianic salvation the holy spirit. peter is filled with the holy spirit what do he do he preached the gospel all right so uh if somebody um will proclaim the truth of the gospel like paul said in philippians even if they have other things wrong you believe that that's from the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit testifies about Christ. Jesus said in John, now he the Holy Spirit comes, will speak of me. So somebody claims to be Spirit-led and a Spirit-anointed and you listen to them and they don't preach about Christ, what do you know? The wrong They're false. <laughs> They're, They're false. My favorite example of that is <laughs> when this lady that, that, that we knew went to, spend a whole week listening to Rodney Howard Brown, had the Laughing Revival down in Texas. And she came back and I said, well, was it from God or not? She goes, oh, I don't know. She so said, there was all this stuff going on and people were certainly excited and the place was full and all these things were happening. I said, okay, let me ask you a question. Did you hear any preaching about the personal work of Christ? Did you hear about the blood atonement? Did you hear about the resurrection? Did you hear the gospel? She said, no, never, not once. I said, well, then it's not from God. See, that's, that, if you go a whole week to what's called a revival and you don't hear about Christ even once, that's not the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus said when the Holy Spirit comes, He'll speak about me. And so Rodney Howard Brown, now I suppose if you put a gun to his head and got him in the corner and say, now do you believe in Jesus? Okay, yeah, I do. I mean, the point is, if you got a chance, if you really love the Lord, if you got a chance to tell people about him, you will do so because it's such a delight to do so. What else is there? Yes. How is <clears> that
1: Christian
0: hedonism going on? Oh, boy. <laughs> <laughs> See, you know, I uh, you just got to get me in trouble, don't you? <laughs> uh, actually, I got an email about them. Uh, somebody here. Oh, you got in on that email. It came from your son. Well,
1: actually, I read it deep. I'm...
0: Oh, he was talking about that. He was talking about it. I read that. I read that myself. Well, um, I would say that Dr. Piper is a very Christ-centered, gospel-centered person, and he doesn't fail that test. As far as Christian hedonism, I don't quite get it. I I, I would agree the one of the things that happens when a person is regenerated is that they are given a hunger for the Lord. And I totally agree with that. So I would be a part of what God does when He saves somebody. But, but personally, I, I, you know, with no all due respect to a wonderful brother, I just don't see the New Testament making that the central thing. And in that email that I sent back to Nick, I pointed out that. Uh, when the Bible talks about people finding pleasure in the world, then it gives an alternative. The alternative isn't Christian hedonism, the alternative is doing the will of God. It's in 1 John 2, it says that, and, and uh, 1 Peter 4, said you were living for pleasure, now you should live for the will of God. Said, so, that may be a truth, and I think you find, especially in the Psalms, that it's absolutely true that we should have a hunger for the Lord, but I don't, I can't make that the linchpin of my theology. Now, Dr. Piper is very good at what he does, and I'm not saying don't read his material. I just don't quite see that as being as comprehensive of an idea. Um, But, I don't know. Yes, Jan. What
1: is Christian
0: hedonism? Okay, what is it? (laughs) All right, good question. Why don't we back up and define it? It's John Piper's idea about desiring God, and his, his idea is this, that God will be most glorified when we are most pleased in Him, we find our pleasure in God. Okay? And then that's sort of his um, integrated motif, I guess, like what we had when we had to write a paper to graduate from Bethel Seminary. And he arranges all of his theological ideas around this concept of finding pleasure in God. And he calls it Christian hedonism. Now, just using the term caused some people to Back, you know say, wait a second, hedonism is a bad thing I don 't know if i want to i don't know if I want to use that term, but if you, but if you allow him to define it uh it's not, I think it's true that Christians do find pleasure in god i I'm not uh, arguing that I just can't see it as the main thing yes if
2: you look at it on one side, I delight to be your will of oh god that's that's one concept now, if you take it instead. From the charismatic type of stuff we we're talking about, and say that when I feel God, that's what I delight, and I have a hunger to feel God as opposed to know God objectively in the scriptures that He's given me to do His will objectively, He's been laid out. It gets kind of weird.
0: Oh, yeah, so I suppose you could say that that would be a danger. I don't know that He would teach that. Yes. not that
1: kind of just like you know that we should love God above all, like the commandment? Isn't that like
0: kind of what? <laughs> well, but then, but then. Yes, that's how the New the Testament, that's how the, that's how the New Testament describes it, that we love the Lord with all heart, soul, mind, and strength, and in the Old Testament as well, and Jesus said that's the summary of all the law. So I could agree with that, but I don't know if I would label that Christian hedonism myself. Yeah, isn't that- but, I, but then I don't have the brain power to create my own theology, so. Yeah, part
1: that Westminster Confession of
0: Faith. Yeah, the Westminster has this line in there, to glorify God, and to enjoy him forever. And so that would be part of that. That's okay. I, you, know, you can read the book. What's the book called? Desiring God. You read the book for yourself and decide if you agree.
1: In some ways, just from listening to his
2: radio shows, it seems like the concept is more, if you, really want, if you want to pursue happiness, here's what you should do and have pursue happiness be your focus. And the way that you do that to be most happy in the long run, and really, if you believe God and you follow His, it's
0: mm-hmm.
1: kind of an odd focus to have.
0: Well, that's what some people say. It doesn't seem to be... If that was the integrating motif of the entire New Testament, I think you'd come up more often. But I'm not saying you can't find it in the Bible, because it does. I, delighting in the Lord is in the Bible. Yes? Oh, so what you're saying is that he's taking that concept and kind of laser-beamed it and it's on the edges of it, there's some things that isn't quite as focused or have a whole footing in as... the Yeah. Well, when I went to, I went to the pastor's conference and I thought what he and his Daniel Fuller were talking about had some, certainly had merit, but I just can't, I, I wouldn't be able to say it's the whole thing in my opinion, but again, note, Dr. Piper is one of the greatest pastors of the Twin Cities here and he's been standing for the gospel for a long, long time. And so I don't want to be critical because we could use a lot more people preaching the gospel out of their pulpit, and he does it. So, yes.
1: I'm not 100% sure, but I think it's possible that the reasoning is not that pleasure is what's at the center so much as the idea is the glory of God is at the center, and when we present Jesus as anything less than the most than the greatest, most desirable, perfect, righteous, beautiful thing. That exists. He He is perfect, and He is what we should desire. That that dishonors God. Okay. And so the problem is that when we tell the world to seek pleasure, the world is blind to that, and so they seek pleasure and sin. And so, so that the pro, the problem is like like Carl was saying we can't just say go seek your pleasure into the world, and you'll find that you'll, Jesus will make you happy. But it's kind of a reaction against if we try and do God's will, but are kind of grumbling about it in the background, we're no better than the people in Hebrews. Okay.
0: All right. Thank you. A nice explanation. But let's get back onto our cross references. All right. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay. Psalm sixty-eight, seventeen. The
1: chariots of God are twenty thousand, even thousands upon thousands. The Lord is among them, as He was in Sinai. In the holy
0: place. The chariots of God are thousands upon thousands. Wasn't there an incident in the Old Testament where they were going to go to war? And, and, yeah, and, and, and somebody was saying, oh, we're, we're in trouble, we're outnumbered. And then they, you know, the Lord pulled back the curtain and let them see the chariots of God. So, oh, we're not outnumbered after all. Okay, now, I, what's the point for us? Well, it says here we've come to myriads of angels. So this is true. It's absolutely true. We can't see these angels, but they're ministering spirits, it says in Hebrews, that are watching over us. And how that works is that God's, God's in charge of the angels. There's these false teachers saying that we can get our own angels and then we tell them what to do. Literally, I heard this guy preaching that you could tell the angels to go get money for you. <laughs> Say, Angel, go get me a ten-pound bag of hundred-dollar bills. Thank you. No, no, that's not how it works. The God's in charge of the angels, but they are looking over us. I believe that. Now, somebody told me that if you go over sixty, the angels get out of your car. But I don't know if that's (laughs) (laughs)
1: true.
0: Only so far. And you're on your own. Okay, Psalm 84 and verse two.
1: <laughs> my soul longs, yes, even faints, for the courts of the Lord.
2: My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God.
0: There's another verse like that, isn't it? My 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 soul faints for the courts of the Lord. My my heart cries out for the living God. So there's David's desire for the Lord, and and that's true. Now, but but it only becomes true when you're a person of faith. Well, if you're you're unregenerate, your desires are for anything but the Lord. So it can only happen after conversion. Okay, uh, Isaiah 51 and verse 11.
1: So the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with saying, with everlasting joy on their heads, they shall obtain joy and gladness. Sorrow and sighing shall flee away.
0: Lois. We used to sing that song. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was, when she she always said, well, we used to sing that. We should sing it again. <laughs> yeah, that was a song that we sang a long time ago. It was a nice song, too. Uh, I could sing it, but I'm not going to. <laughs> Jeremiah 10.10. Amen. <laughs>
1: The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting King. At His wrath the earth quakes and the nations cannot endure His indignation.
0: So there's God as wrathful, as the Almighty God and the whole earth quakes at His wrath. Daniel 7 and verse 10.
1: A fiery stream issued and came forth from before Him. A thousand thousand ministered to Him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before Him. The court was seated and the books were opened.
0: There's the myriads of angels. So Daniel saw that. Thousands upon ten thousands of angels surrounding God. Wow. Galatians 4 and verse 26.
2: But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother.
0: Okay. Interesting. But the
2: Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother.
0: The Jerusalem above is free.
2: This is allegorically speaking, for these two women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. and It corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother.
0: Wow. So it's very similar to what it says in Hebrews. Uh, Ryan preached on that when he preached through Galatians. Philippians, What? Oh, Philippians 3 and verse 20. Okay, got it.
1: Our citizenship is in heaven from which we also have... from which we also... from which also we eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ.
0: Okay, our citizenship is in heaven and we're waiting for Him to come for us. Revelation 3 and verse 12.
2: He who overcomes, I will make Him a pillar in the temple of my God, and He will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name.
0: Okay. Again, Jerusalem in heaven. And then uh, Revelation 5, 11 and 12.
1: Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living uh, creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads. And thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing.
0: We used to sing that too. <laughs> we still do sometimes. Worthy is the Lamb. Remember that chorus? That's a, be- that's a beautiful song. We should sing that again. <laughs> yeah. Well, the problem is over the last 35 years, we keep getting new songs, so if we're going to... We'd have to have church seven days a week to sing them all. All right, that's an idea. (laughs) Okay, Revelation 21.2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay, talks about the New Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven. So for now, unseen. And we are in this presence. I'm going to quote uh, William Lane. In sharp contradistinction distinction from the scene at Sinai, every aspect of this vision provides encouragement for coming boldly to the presence of God. Okay, well, let's go back to our little remember the contrast. You have not come to, to talk about Sinai, but you have come to. Well, one of the things about the one we haven't come to, which is Sinai, is that if you they couldn't touch it because of the holiness and splendor of God. Even if a beast touched it, it would have to die. And so there was this idea of, because of their own sinfulness and God's glorious holiness and power displayed on Sinai, that only Moses could go up there, right? And so they there was this uh, idea that I can't get any closer because I'll die. And here now we have a greater, more glorious reality, and it's something that we come to by faith that we can come close. We draw near according to the. Hebrews. Okay, so back to what Lane said. Encouragement for coming boldly into the presence of God, which is something again, it's almost oxymoronic. In other words, come boldly into the presence of God. Well, if you know anything about the Bible, the presence of God is something you don't go boldly because you would just the likelihood is you're going to die. So it just shows how great a salvation we have that the blood of Jesus has so cleansed us from sin that we could even come into God's presence. Isn't that good news?
2: We come to God by faith. But these things that are happening in the church today, even if they did bring you closer to God,
1: according to this, God would not honor that because death is. is
0: Well, yeah, it's not. If you come by some way other than what God ordained, you just die. Yeah, you can't. You've got to come by the way He said. And the way you come is through Christ. You don't walk through a labyrinth to get closer to God, you come through Christ. And and anything else that we create is an affront to Christ. Because we're saying we don't think what Christ did is sufficient. We've got to come up with, it's not good enough. We need something better than what Christ did. And and that's just an affront, I think. Here, again, back to William Lane. The frightening visual imagery of blazing fire, darkness, and gloom of the Old Covenant fades before the reality of the city of the living God, heavenly Jerusalem, The cacophony of whirlwind, trumpet blast, sound of words is muted and replaced with the joyful praise of angels in a festal festal gathering. The trembling congregation of Israel gathered solemnly at the base of the mountain is superseded by the assembly of those whose names are permanently inscribed in the heavenly archives. Wow, what a way with words. I wish I could write like this. An overwhelming impression of the unapproachability of God is eclipsed in the experience of full access to the presence of God and of Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. So that's a beautiful description of what we have in the new covenant and how much better it is than what it was like under the old covenant where there's access was so restricted and they had to just... Um, you know, only the priests could come on the day of atonement, and so on. And that's that's what they had. So this is a glorious thing, and that's why the author of Hebrews is so strong, warning about about apostasy. To walk away from this is what a what a affront to God. To to see this as an unimportant thing, something that we have that's just wonderful and glorious and holy, and and a privilege that we don't deserve. That us sinners could come in the presence of God. It's is, is just unfathomable according to the terms of the old covenant, but yet here it is. And to be dissatisfied with it is literally an affront to the blood of Christ. And it says that the, that the danger would be to trample underfoot the blood of the covenant by which we've been saved. So... Um, So these are the unseen realities and the new covenant blessing. Let's go to verse 23. It has a term. I have a whole bunch of references to this and I probably will be, I'm predicting that we'll start a discussion that will take the rest of the time, but we'll see. Knowing, knowing us. And the discussion is going to be about this book in which the names of the redeemed are written. All right. And we're going to go through... I'm going to go have us open to all the passages that mention it and then see what we can tell in general this book is all about. So here's what it says. So we've come to the myriads of angels and then the next verse, 23, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven and to God the judge of all and to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. Now the phrase... The General Assembly, Church of the First Born enrolled in heaven, what's that a description of? We have a theological term for it. Yeah, the church universal and triumphant, I think. Or the church triumphant. Now, that church triumphant is everyone who's ever been redeemed, Old and New Testament, who are now with the Lord. So that would be... That would include Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Job, and Elijah, and Moses, and all the saints. And it would include Peter, and James, and John, and Paul. And it would include anyone who's ever been truly redeemed at any era of history from Adam till now. And ultimately, it would include us and everybody else in that final assembly. So this will be the assembly of those who are here called firstborn. Called firstborn. Now this may be an allusion. This firstborn thing I think is an allusion to the Passover. And, um, Israel's is called God's firstborn because of having been chosen by God. And maybe, um, let's do some more verses. Diane Bakowski, Psalm 89 and verse 7. Diane DeWay, Exodus 4:22 and Dennis, Psalm 111, in verse one, and Noel Luke 10 in verse 20. We'll stop there for now. Okay, and then uh, we'll see this firstborn idea as it was used in Exodus, but first Psalm 89 and verse seven.
1: God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be held in reverence by all
0: those around Him. So God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints. So there's that term assembly again. The assembly of the Holy Ones. Exodus 4.22
1: Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, my firstborn.
0: Okay, that's, that's the key term there. Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now, what's going to happen with the firstborn in Egypt? Yeah, they're to, no, Yeah, but in Egypt, they're going to die unless. Remember the the Passover? They had to put the blood. They had to. They had to slaughter lamb and put the blood on the doorpost? And it said, "When I see the blood, I will pass over you." So Israel was passed over and brought out as God's firstborn. Now here, the whole nation in view is the firstborn. The one with the special privilege and a special inheritance status. Now here, the whole nation is God's firstborn. And they're brought out of Egypt through the Red Sea. And the Egyptians, who didn't have the blood and weren't willing to come to God on his terms, perished. And so here, the firstborn would be, I think, figuratively used for the whole of the redeemed. Yes.
2: Was Israel the firstborn because the Gentiles are the secondborn coming into Christ?
0: Well, not according to not according to this terminology here, because the firstborn in Hebrews would be this general assembly, which would be the whole people of God. I think, Church of the Firstborn. I think. Hey, that'd be a new. Maybe we could start a new elitist group. <laughs> you know i got an idea. I'm going to be a famous preacher. I'll come up with a new experience where if you have that experience, then you get to be called the firstborn, and then we'll have an elite church. No, that would be bad. Then we get sell birth certificates. <laughs> sell birth certificates. <laughs> See? There's, a, there's always an idea for a cult that somebody hasn't started yet. Uh, Larry? Uh,
1: I don't know if he was able to look it up in the original writings. Is that word firstborn also the same as the one in Colossians, for telecast?
0: Uh, yeah, Colossians one twelve, Is that the one you're looking for? Yeah, Colossians one twelve. Yep. That was one of my cross references, but we didn't get to. Okay, so firstborn here meaning the whole re- of the redeemed. Let's get these other cross-reference. Yes?
2: Uh, is it possible that the firstborn or is also a reference to the law where it says that the firstborn of all... Generally, the firstborn of, of an animal was to be sacrificed.
0: Given to but the, the Lord.
2: Of all your children, you are to
0: redeem. Yes, a firstborn was to be offered to the Lord. And we are then yeah. all redeemed. That's very good, Tim. Thank you. That's a good insight. Because I remember that when I was teaching preaching through Genesis, that the firstborn was to be the Lord's, offered to the Lord, but child sacrifice is not allowed. So the, the, an animal was offered instead to signify that the firstborn is the Lord's. So here, the firstborn we meet everybody who's the Lord's. Um, Cathy, um, McCarthy says the
1: firstborn of Jesus Christ?
0: Well, it is, but the, the, Jesus is the firstborn from the dead, and then He brings many sons to glory. But by being in Christ, we participate in that. Yes. Doesn't
1: firstborn have an
0: inheritance? Yes, the firstborn had a, a double inheritance, if I remember right. But then the firstborn, uh, or the firstborn son, and then, but the firstborn son was also responsible to take care of his parents in their old age. So he had special privileges, but also special and unique responsibilities. But here we were looking for the use of the term that would include everyone. So as Kathy said, uh, Jesus is called the firstborn from the dead, and those who are in Christ participate in being firstborn. The old covenant idea was the firstborn were the ones dedicated to the Lord. Israel is called the firstborn as a group that came out of Egypt. And so here the term is expanded to mean all those who are truly believers in the church of the firstborn. I'm surprised somebody hasn't got that idea and started a cult with it. You don't give any ideas. I'm not going to do that. There's nothing elitist about this. This is just all Christians. Okay, Psalm 111 and verse 1. Praise the
1: Lord. I will give thanks to the Lord with all my heart in the company of the upright and in the assembly.
0: Okay, there's that same term. In the assembly, I will give praise to the Lord. Uh, Luke 10 and verse 20.
1: Nevertheless, do not rejoice
0: in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that... Your names are recorded in heaven. Don't rejoice that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. Now that's going to get us our topic. Let's look about this. Let's talk about this book uh, that where God has a, ro- a roll book of the redeemed. And um, let's just all turn to these together because. I think that's the easiest way to do it. Exodus, the first one. I'm going to, we're going to study these in the order that we find them in Scripture, starting with the earliest mention and going all the way into Revelation. First mention, Exodus 32:32. Exodus 32:32. And try to keep in mind the different ways that this might be mentioned or used. Now, the reason people are of are interested in his roll book is they want to know when the names got in there, who put them in there, and how did they get in there. And can they come back out again? You know, somebody, one person told me every the name of every human who had ever been born was put in there in God's roll book of the redeemed. And then when they reject God, they get erased out. Well, that's somebody's idea. Now let's see if the Bible says that. Okay, Exodus 32.32 says this. Remember now the context. Moses, God was saying, okay, I'm going to wipe out all these people. They're too sinful. They're too rebellious. They won't listen to me. So I'm going to wipe them all out and I'm going to start over with you, Moses, and I'm going to raise up a new nation. Now here's what Moses said. But now, if thou wilt, forgive their sin. And if not, please blot me out from thy book which thou hast written. So Moses you know, he pleaded for the people. He said, if, don't, "Don't blot them; I'll blot me out." But forgive them. Now, isn't that showing Moses' a selfless love? It makes me think of Paul when he says in Romans nine that if possible, I could work myself a curse from Christ for the sake of the Jews. So Paul had the same attitude that Moses did. Now, God wasn't going to actually. Uh, blot Moses out of the book. But, um, in the next verse, he says that. Okay. And verse 33, And the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned uh, against me, I will blot him out of the book. Alright? So that is where some people get the idea that all the names are in there and then uh, then they're blotted out when people sin. Well, in which case, they'd all be blotted out because everybody sins. Alright? Now, but the main point, okay, the main point is the idea that there's a book with the names of the redeemed in it. Now let's, the next one is Deuteronomy 9.14. We want to jot these down and do your own study on this. Deuteronomy 9.14. I'll start with verse 13. The Lord spoke further to me, saying, I have seen this people. Indeed, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make you a nation uh, mightier and greater than they. So here's this idea of blotting out, although it doesn't mention the word book. But then we go forward to Deuteronomy 29.20. And it says, The Lord shall never be willing to forgive him But rather, the anger of the Lord and His jealousy will burn against that man, and every curse which is written in this book will rest on him, and the Lord will blot His name out from under heaven. Again, talking about blotting out His name. Now, Psalm 69.28, where it says here, now this is an imprecatory psalm. <laughs> so there. You know what an imprecatory Psalm is? Yeah, yeah that's when when and some people are, are troubled by these because they are in the Bible. That's when David or some psalmist is asking God to destroy his enemies. Okay? So here's what it says. Psalm sixty nine twenty eight. May they be blotted out of the book of life. May they not be recorded with the righteous. So this is those the wicked, the evil enemies. So David's praying that they be blotted out of the book of life. Anybody want to ask about that? Yes, Kathy. We were just reading yesterday where he was saying something about, I hate those that hate you. I didn't That's continue saying you a new believer reading, and we're
1: supposed to, we're commanded to love our enemies What is that
0: about? All right. I don't think we're going to get through all our Book of Life books verses. Okay, but it comes up. I remember discussing this in seminary with Dr. Smith, one of my Old Testament teachers. And as a matter of fact, um, you see similar things in the New Testament. See, some people say, well, the Old Testament has an inferior idea. And so you find in the Old Testament these imprecatory psalms. You know, may God judge the wicked or may God blot their name out or may may I hate those who hate you and may so on. That's, that's an imprecation is the name of that. But as Dr. Smith pointed out, you find similar things in the New Testament. And for example, anytime somebody's crying out to God for justice or even praying for the return of Christ... We are, in fact, praying that God would come and destroy the wicked. And as a matter of fact, Paul says it's only right that God would bring His wrath on those who have afflicted you in Thessalonians. So you can see imprecations in Paul. You can see them in the Gospels. And so what Dr. Smith says, it's certainly false to say that the Old Testament had had a different ethic than the New on this because you find both find these things in both... um uh the old and new testament now does is this somehow a failure to to love your enemies well <clears throat> let's talk about just God's own nature do we not believe that God loves his enemies yes we do It says that and God showed love to his enemies in many ways including allowing them to live on even though they hate him and giving them time to repent. But do you believe that as God loves that because God loves his enemies, does it mean that God will not bring his wrath to bear? Those two are not um, mutually exclusive. So a God who loves his enemy is also a God who will execute his perfect justice because he's a just God. So God is able to be loving and just simultaneously. All right. Now, when we pray to God or express these sort of things, like you see here, these are based on two things that are both true. When we pray for God's mercy, we pray for the salvation of the lost, we're praying for something we know to be God's revealed will. That the lost would repent and and come to Jesus Christ. But when we pray for God's justice, that He would deliver us from this cry out. It says that the, His elect cry out to Him day and night for justice. And Luke, all right, will He tarry long over them? Then we're pr- praying that God's justice also would be done and that this wicked, rebellious world would get the ju- judgment it deserves. Both things exist in the Bible. Yes, Keith. I
2: always looked at it from the standpoint you can imagine the Christians of the time of Paul when Saul was going around house to house, praying that God would deliver them. And God comes down and saves Saul and ends up being a spokesperson for the gospel. I think that we can pray this on an ultimate basis, that we pray for God's judgment and that God would come down, knowing that the world was universally evil including us, and be, that God, because he didn't come down before we were saved and smite us, he still <laughs> extends that same mercy to everybody. Yeah. And ultimately, when he cut, chips our counter, when he does come again, that's what we're really praying for. Not so much an immediate thing, because we don't know Because the same salvation that was extended to us, yeah. could, in fact be extended to the ones that are persecuting us now.
0: As, absolutely. When Paul, in fact, when God extended it to Paul, he had to go talk to this Ananias, because Ananias was scared to death, I'm going to go pray for Paul. It'll kill me. <laughs> he had to, so he had to be convinced that Paul was converted before he even would go talk to him. Uh, it, it seems conflicted, but both things are true. Yes, sir.
1: I have one question on, the, on the, the book of life, like in the, in the Old Testament versus the New. Uh, is the Old Testament, uh, and I'm not sure what the Hebrews is, but are they talking about when it said blot out from the book of life, or, or is that meaning? To kill that person because I don't think they're talking about the eternal life and that part of the
0: earth. Um, good question. I, I, does anybody want to comment on it? It seemed to me like this book of life w- enrolled in heaven was the people that were truly the lords, not not just people who got to live. But I may be wrong. But in
1: this, like in the song, he's, he's talking about his enemies or whatever, and he's out of the book of life. Does that mean kill his enemy at that point or? Yes God to keep them from
0: salvation. <laughs> That's a good question. That's a very good question. Tyler, do you want to comment on that?
1: <laughs> do you have like, Daniel 12.1 as a cross-reference? Does that...
0: Yes, I do. Go ahead and read it, though. Daniel
1: 12.1. At that time shall there Michael, the great prince, who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since, that, since was a nation until that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Okay. That sounds more like a Revelations type of
0: book of life. And Daniel. Yeah, and there's probably an allusion to that. I'm going to summarize before we even read them all, that the book of life ultimately, although it's a metaphor, and a metaphor can be used more than one way in the Bible, Mm -hmm. okay, but it's a metaphor for all those who are the Lord's and remain the Lord's. Okay, and their names are enrolled in heaven because they are God's. And it signifies having a true relationship with God. All right, yes?
2: Just in response to the question, is it referring to the book of life eternally or just living? In the context of David's enemies, if they were enemies
1: when they died, it comes about the same thing.
0: Yeah. I, I think that it, it, in every case, the book of life has to do with those who are really the Lord's. And if they're blotted out of that, they're lost. Now. Paul
2: said something like that when he says, if anyone has another gospel, let him be anathema.
0: Yeah. He's, he's Blot them saying. out. That's an impre- imprecation. Now let me show you this. Here it says in Second Thessalonians, in verse, chapter 1 and verse 5, This is the plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are indeed suffering. For after all, it's only just for God to repay with afflictions those who afflict you. And give relief to you who are afflicted as as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord, from the glory of His power. Now, I wonder if you went to pastors.com if you could find a sermon on that. This doesn't sound not very seeker friendly, is it? <laughs> um, so these things coexist in the Bible, and I, the point is that they are in the Old and New Testament, and it doesn't. I think that in some regard, all of us have to be loving and compassionate and pray the Lord of Harvest to send laborers in the harvest, pray for the salvation of the lost, pray that God will show mercy, but somehow at the same time, we're praying for Christ to return knowing that when He does, all of this is going to happen. And we know both things are to be His revealed will. We know that it's His revealed will to show mercy, and for people to be saved. And we know that it's His revealed will to bring justice and to destroy His enemies. And the good thing is, it's in God's hands. So we pray and the Lord will do what He's going to do. Let's see if we can do a few more of these verses quickly. Um, yeah, the next one, uh, which um, Tyler mentioned, Daniel 12.1, um, that Tyler read. And then there's uh, Philippians 4 3. Philippians 4 and verse 3. I thought of another imprecation. Uh, Paul said, uh, Alexander, the coppersmith, has done me much harm. May the Lord reward him according to his deeds. <laughs> Indeed, uh, Philippians 4 3, Indeed, true comrade, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the course of the gospel together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now here it means they're saved, right? Their names are in the book of life. That means they're the Lord's and they're redeemed. Now, um, the next one is Revelation 3 and verse 5. I think we'll at least get these read here today. Revelation 3 and verse 5. He who overcomes shall thus be clothed in white garments And I will not erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. Now, some have argued, therefore, that you can lose your salvation. But as I pointed out, it's actually telling us that he's not going to erase our name. It's a promise rather than a threat. Yes, yes.
1: I've heard that before from a friend of mine who's a theologian. And I'm just asking myself, why would they make the assumption that every person's name is written on that book to begin with? Why would that assumption be put out there? Jesus um, died for
0: all. That everybody's name would be in there? Um, I don't know, because when you read the book, when you, what I would conclude from all these references <coughs> that the names in the book are the names of people that are redeemed or that are the Lord's and that the names excluded would be the lost. So, where they get the idea that everybody's name is in there at one point, I don't know, because it, it, doesn't, it doesn't use it in the Bible. I mean,
2: ultimately, it doesn't really matter how they're blotted out and how they're written until it comes to the end. When he reads your name,
0: that's the good thing. Yeah, what you want is it for to be there on that final day. <laughs> and I, I think, see, what we can know, Gabe, Gabriel, is this, the terms. See, we have to always distinguish between what's revealed and what's not revealed. Okay? What's not revealed is particularly whose names are in there. But what is revealed is that there is such a book that your name is there, you're saved. And what is revealed is the terms, how you can know your name's in there, and that's by repenting and believing the gospel. And that's what we know. All right. In the end, there will be a book and your name needs to be in there. All right, yes. <laughs>
1: Can I back you up back to this Psalm 69? Okay. I'm a little confused on that. David wants some um, dead and eternally dead.
0: It seems right? like it, doesn't it, seems it? Like
1: it? Okay, so in my Bible, the and, this is Amplified Bible, the and is emphasized. So it almost makes it sound like there's two. Follow me?
0: Okay. Well, the Amplified often, maybe it's not the best for trying to make that kind of a subtle distinction, okay. because amplified will give various well, this synonyms.
1: Says, that's
0: the- well, the King James, well then it has to be right. Well, that's- <laughs> <laughs> no more needs said. It's like this old Pentecostal. I heard a story about this old Pentecostal in the fifties was was in and they were um, they were talking about Bible versions. There weren't that many in the fifties. Basically, the RSV, the ASV. Yeah. And the King James and a few others, and they were talking about them, and this guy kind of got disgusted with it. So he says, "I've heard enough about all these versions. Let's see what the Bible says." And he pulls out his King James.
1: <laughs> what is the first sentence
0: though, in your verse 28? Sixty-nine. Okay, to, Let me read the last two verses here. We're running out of time. And then we'll hold that thought. Revelation 13:8. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who has been slain. So now here, that would certainly be evidence against that view that everybody's name was in it. Because here it talks about names not written in. Now, there's a, let me tell you about this verse, though. You could, it can be translated legitimately two different ways from the Greek. It either says, the name's not written from the foundation of the world, of the book of the Lamb who has been slain, or it can also be translated, uh, whose names have not been written in the book of the life of the Lamb who was slain before the foundation of the world, or from the foundation of the world. So it's either saying Christ was slain from the foundation of the world, or the book with the names was there from the foundation of the world. It says one of those two things. Well, yes. One
2: or both, because we know the Lamb was slain from the foundation of the world.
0: Okay, one or, okay, that's either or or both and. All right. Yeah, it could be both. Okay. That's Ephesians one. Okay. Yes, Bob. How
1: about the
0: whole predestined for Well, that's again, that's comes up. All right. Now, even if you just believe in foreknowledge, and if some some would say, I believe in foreknowledge, but I do not believe in predestination. But it, in which case, it doesn't really change anything because even if it's just foreknowledge, the names are still in God's mind in His book from the foundation of the world. It doesn't, they're still there. And they're still the same names either way. Alright? <laughs> yes, sir?
1: I'm, I came I in late, so I don't know how much of this has been covered. But what comes to mind is the land that Israel... The territory of Israel in the covenant of God gave Israel. Then Israel, in the year 2006 or five, whatever it was, portions off part of that land that was given them to seek peace with the Palestinians. Highly encouraged by the U.S. government, are we guilty of breaking God's covenant also?
0: Oh, I don't know. Why are we what is your opinion: on all this? <laughs> OK. Well now we're three after we started a new topic. Well, my opinion is that, that God gave the land to Israel and that we shouldn't be pressuring Israel to give it up. My opinion is also is giving it up was not going to get them peace because it never did. But my opinion also is they're not going to have all the land God promised until Christ comes back and gives it to them. Amen. That's in my opinion. But God's working now in history. Alright, we have so much. We just started next week. Bring all your ideas about the book of life and we'll start this discussion up again. Alright? Here, look up all you want.